Hey everybody, it's Sunday, June 22nd, 2014. Hope you're having a great day. And today we're talking to Carl Kozak, where I met on a big commerce webinar recently, where we had a Q&A panel with some of the customers about fulfillment, uh, kind of things of that sort. So he was one of the panelists and I got to meet him on Skype uh, afterwards. And here's the conversation we had uh, about the Kickstarter project he launched and his business called Core Essentials. Now, if you look at the image of this episode, I gotta say, he kind of looks like Jack Bauer from 24. So if you're a big fan of that show, uh, you know last week's episode was pretty crazy. Uh, right now it's in season 9 called Live Another Day uh, in London. I won't give away any spoilers, but if you haven't seen it yet, uh, it's probably one of the best shows I think in history. Uh, but you know, I'll stop on this tangent before we get off track here. Um, and before we start, I want to share a productivity trick I've incorporated lately from Tim Ferriss. Uh, there was one podcast he had, I think episode 13, about you know how he prioritizes his day. And just real quick to summarize it, uh, what he does is every morning uh, when you wake up, you you know don't turn on your computer, you don't check email, and what you do is you take a post-it note with you somewhere, you make a tea, you make a coffee, you sit down, and you write down three to five things that are making you anxious or nervous for the day. So these are often tasks that you put off on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week things that you know you should be doing but you haven't been doing them, uh, maybe because they make you feel uncomfortable or they're kind of difficult things to do. And once you have three to five things down on a list, the thing to ask yourself is, does completing any of these tasks make the other ones easier or irrelevant? So does completing one task make the others easier or irrelevant? And we're looking for a force multiplier effect from a list of these five things. So uh, if you're really honest with yourself, you should narrow this down to two or three, maybe one. And then what you do for the rest of the day is you just focus two to three hours where you just focus on this thing only and you ignore everything else. So for example, uh, I do this over breakfast. Uh, I started doing this only a few days ago. So I take a post-it note with me uh, to this breakfast place at a local Vietnamese joint um, where I have some rice, you know, some side dishes. And so I leave my phone at the house. I just sit there for about five to six minutes while they're making the food. I write things down. And then as I think things through, it kind of helps me prioritize everything uh, throughout the day. So for most guys in the e-commerce space, it'll be how can I increase my sales? And what you might come up with is usual things like tactical stuff, like tweaking headlines, button colors, uh, things like that. Whereas you compare it to, say, calling retailers or doing high friction outreach to potential press, uh, bloggers or things of that nature, right? There's a different kind of impact those different actions have. And what you want to do is you want to focus on the high friction ones that really make you uncomfortable and are the ones that, you know, are really more scalable, I guess, in some ways too. So uh, basically that's the summary of it. Uh, check out Tim Ferriss's podcast, episode 13, if you want more information on that. Uh, and with that being said, let's just get on with this week's show. Don't deliver a product, deliver an experience. You're listening to the Build My Online Store podcast, and I'm your host, Terry Lin. We're here to talk about running an online store and building a strong e-commerce brand to take your online store to the next level. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check us out at buildmyonlinestore.com. Let's get on with the show. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Today, I've got Carl over at Core Essentials, where we're going to talk about his company. So Carl, uh, who are you and what do you do? Hi, hey, first, Terry, thanks for having me on the show. I have a company called Core Essentials, and uh, my partners and I, and we manufacture accessories. Primarily right now, our first product is Trackline Belts. It is a very kind of uh, unique new belt with a track on the back of the belt. And although this isn't necessarily a new product in Asia, we brought it to America and redesigned the buckles using a spring-loaded caliper in the back and created some um, kind of classically unique designs for men. 
I've had one of these belts before, but for those of us who may not know what's a track line belt, how would you explain it to them? Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's got a track, the track on the back is a, is a kind of a nylon plastic track that has small notches in it and it's every quarter of an inch. And we've got about 40 of these. So in, instead of five holes in your belt that are one inch apart, you've got these 40 sizing positions about a quarter of an inch apart. So you get this really nice, snug, perfect feeling fit. So throughout the day, as your waist size fluctuates, you know, you eat too much for lunch, you don't eat, you take a walk, you work out, you sit at your desk. So throughout the day, your, your waist is just slightly fluctuating and this belt kind of adjusts easily with you and makes you feel, it just like a more comfortable fit. Nice. So instead of like having to change the holes on my belt, I just kind of slide it back and forth. And Yeah. The belt just slides right through the buckle and clicks almost like a zip tie, I think, and, and right to your exact waist size each time you put it on. And so before we started the call, we were talking about how you worked in kind of the entertainment industry. So how did you end up from there to like making belts? Um, I was in the movie business for a number of years, I think 15 years or so almost. And um, I had also had a, uh, near the end, a 3D camera company, and I was designing 3D camera systems. And we were going to be making some of them in China. It just made sense. But the 3D business, the 3D industry has kind of gone downhill, if you haven't noticed, in the last two or three years. Um, it was really hot at one time. So anyway, one of my partners is located in uh, Shaman. And uh, he came over, and one, uh, during one meeting, he showed me a belt that he had on. And I thought it was really neat and kind of cool. I love the functionality of it, but I just thought the buckle was really, well, A, it wasn't kind of, a, it wasn't an American type design. It had more of an Asian, you know, front to it. And I thought, well, I might not be popular with everybody here, but it's not bad. But the back was really bulky and had a lot too much extra metal and used a large magnet system to control it. And so I just thought it looked kind of gimmicky. So I said, well, you know, I, if I could redesign the buckle and make the buckle sleeker, slimmer, and function better, I think that would be popular. I think that's why it hasn't really caught, hadn't caught on yet. I see. And so what made it, what did it take to go from like, oh, this is a cool thing to change to actually bring out a new design, looking for like suppliers and stuff? I got, I got lucky, I think, by having my partner living in China. That was a big help. He's an American guy. So he understands the market. He understands a business. And he's usually one step ahead of me. And I think that's, that could be really helpful. So our conversations, if I had to deal with the factory direct and I, there was a language barrier and a culture barrier, I think that would have um, slowed everything down. But he comes back several times a year. We Skype quite a bit. And it helped us to source the various factories, the materials. By the way, we use like, you know, top grain or full grain leather, the top of the, the cow's hide, the best quality leather available. Uh, we're able to use solid stainless steel for the buckle. So we, we kind of go above and beyond with the quality and trying to make a really nice product. And, and he's there to, to QC everything and quality check it all before it leaves. Yeah. So uh, what did like the first few samples look like or how long did the process take before you finally had something that you could present to the market? It, I'd say it took about a year. It was a good year or so, maybe almost a year and a half. And we went through several iterations. I had a designer over here, an engineer that I'd worked with. Um, for the other 3D camera systems, several guys. So we kind of took the belt apart, the current buckle, and decided that we had to throw out the whole mechanism. It just wasn't going to work for what we wanted to do. It was just still going to be too bulky. So we just decided to use a much slimmer spring-loaded caliper. And so it took a number of iterations, a number of prototypes going back and forth, FedExing stuff, you know, back, back and forth till we finally got it right. And even now, after the first Kickstarter campaign, we still, you know, made another iteration and tweaked some things to make it better. Yeah, gotcha. Do you find uh, belts are more easier designed than 3D cameras? Yeah, although it's surprisingly interesting how complicated the buckle was. I mean, and partially because we threw everything else out and started with something fresh. So 
the cameras were the same way though. The camera systems are kind of the same thing. We had to field test stuff. We, we did a lot of shooting in 3D, a lot of documentaries. We shot one of India's largest 3D films for them with our, our, our camera systems. So there were some parallels, you know, there were definitely some parallels, but um, that's a very, very niche kind of product, you know, the 3D camera systems, whereas the belts are obviously a very broad product. I think every guy, every time I sell one of these, people always say the same thing. I don't wear my other belt anymore. This is the best belt I've ever had. You mentioned you guys had a Kickstarter and just kind of Googled you guys very well, uh, over 300,000. So what was the story like before Kickstarter or how did you decide to go on this platform? Boy, I, I sure wish they had this platform available when I was younger. I mean, I, I, I don't even remember who told me about it, but when I, when I heard about it and did some research, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, you're really kind of pre-selling something. So, and it gives people a chance to really, you know, it's kind of a market test at the same time because we went to market with four buckles. I thought one would be the most popular, and boy, was I wrong. There was another one that was more popular by far, and the one I thought was going to be most popular was the least popular. So, I thought this is really a great way to test to, to market test products as well when you when you launch them. Yeah, and before you make like two thousand at a time and find out that's still one people don't want. Isn't that what people do usually? I mean, in the, you know, in the, that's that's the normal way you did it. You went out and you, you made a couple thousand or something because you couldn't make ten of them. You had to once you start to spark up the uh, machines, the factory, you might as well make a thousand of them or something. So then all of a sudden you're stuck with this inventory. Yeah. So what did the lead up to Kickstarter look like? Because I know a lot of people now, like it's very scientific, like you line up your press beforehand, you have a big launch, but did you, was this the same path you went down or what did it look like when you had the Kickstarter? Uh, you know, the first one was uh, a bit different because I had no idea what to expect. But since I came from the movie business, I was like, oh great, I can put a video together some music, credits, you know, whatever. I, I didn't want to go too overboard with the video, though. I still wanted to keep it relatively simple because we're not a big corporation. We don't really want to look like a big corporation. That's not who we are. So, you know, we did that. You put your page together. I did spend um, a good amount of time working out a spreadsheet of all the costs involved because I think it was very important to start with, okay, what's this product going to cost us? Before we start pricing it, what's the cost of goods, right? You know, what's all our overhead? What's our shipping or sales tax? There are several things that were left out on Kickstarter's part and they don't really mention or talk about. And there's only limited control because Amazon Payments does all the uh, money collecting. But there is, so there's a lot of organizing. You want to make sure you got all your costs down, all your ducks in a row, your product's really ready to go. There's a lot of photography involved. And then there's writing some good, good copy and using some great graphics, right? And did you write all the copy yourself or did you have someone hired to do it? Or No, I did all the copy myself. I just did all the copy and I, uh, my wife did some of the graphics. I went around first and took pictures of my of friends of mine in the belt, and then I realized why they don't use why you don't use your friends why you use models. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I told somebody, I said, "Well, I'm trying to get you know like a kind of a regular guy look," and then I realized, oh, okay, that's why people don't do regular guy looks because people just generally we all most of us don't photograph all that well, you know. And with Kickstarter, it's it's supposed to be a bit homespun in a way. I mean, you are starting out, right? If you were a big corporation and you had a big firm doing all that, you probably wouldn't need the money. Cool. So, what was the angle with on your Kickstarter, like with the story? Because most videos tend to have a really compelling story. What what was your thoughts uh, for yours? Two or three months before I had seen the belt, my wife had bought me a belt for my birthday, and it was a real nice belt she bought over from Nordstrom's. And I put the thing on, and it just didn't quite fit right. So. I, don't, I probably should have just taken it back and got a different size. I think she didn't realize that I had lost a little weight, a few pounds. So she was used to buying like one size. But anyway, so I put a hole in it and I just kind of, it just didn't go through the leather very well. It just looked, it just didn't look good. It looked bad. It looked like I made, had made the hole. It looked like I made it primitively. So I was like, oh, great. I just, and it was like a hundred and something dollar belt. So I kind of felt like I ruined the belt. You know, I had to like hide it. 
Because I, I did the whole, it turned out to be like at an angle or something. It was, it was kind of partially torn. So anyway, that kind of was even more motivation because then when I saw the belt, it made me thinking, you know, I was in that kind of mind frame like, oh, hey, this is great. You don't even need holes. Who wants holes anyway? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes holes, like you're in the middle of two holes. Yes. And you're like, oh, God, do I use the bigger one or the smaller one? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are, they, when they go to get the belt size, you know, they're, they're, they're in between size. They're like, they're not a 32, 34, and they're not a 34, 30, uh, or 30, 638 or something kind of in between you know so this thing has a 10 inch track so when you cut it you we send everybody gets the same size belt and you cut it to get it in, in your size range so once you get down there you have about five inches each direction yeah so manufacturing wise it makes it a lot more straightforward too rather than having these different sizes exactly for retailers it's a lot less they don't have to carry as much inventory they can carry a handful of belts they don't need every size they just need one size awesome all right so uh, let's move on to after the kickstarter so after the kickstarter uh, was it hard to fulfill these orders? Because I know some of them are very demanding. Uh, what did your timeline look like uh, after you got the funding? Uh, it was. I mean, it was It was a bit more than I expected. There were some more delays than I had anticipated. You know, you don't get paid right away. It takes about a close to 10 days to 14 days to get paid from Amazon payments. Then you kind of go into this where you put a down payment down on the deposit on the order. And the factory gets all the materials together and they start. So it takes a couple of weeks, two or three weeks before anything really even gets started. I think some people from Kickstarter might be under the impression that, you know, the next day you're starting on, the, you're starting to make their uh, product. So it is, it is a bit, you know, the first time around we had over 4,000 uh, customers. We had to really uh, keep them up abreast of what was going on with the updates, make sure everybody's addresses and, and orders were correct. And then once we set the, uh, sent the order off to China, you know, we were involved in doing other things for the company, but and we just keep everybody abreast of it. And then when the order came in, we just kind of all hands on deck shipping. I think it was about three weeks worth of shipping, you know, nonstop. Yeah, I think most people don't understand how long physical products takes to make. Like just getting it sampled, made, and then like shipped from wherever to the U.S., like customs, you know, bill of landing, crates, all that stuff. Like, I think most people have no idea. And they think it's like, oh, yeah, I got the money. I actually get it in like a week, just like going to the mall and buying something. Right, and you got to, you know, there's the, they go by, by boat because you're not going to pay for air. It's just too expensive. So you go by boat. A boat takes two or three weeks. Then uh, both orders that we've had, or two recent orders, and the one from Kickstarter, uh, got pulled aside for customs check, for a double check. So then you have to pay for the customs check. You pay for it. So if they decide to inspect you, they charge you like 150 bucks or something like that. They have to take it over and put it in a different warehouse. It takes like another week. Wow. Is that by per crate or how does how do they charge you? Is it by like weight or just by one time? I'm not really sure. I, I, I couldn't, I'm sorry, I can't, I, I don't remember, but I was just told there was going to be a charge that I had to pay for it. And I had to pay for the drop off to their warehouse. It was like a total of close to 200 bucks. And you got to wait, you know, it holds you up another week while they inspect it. And they have the right to do it. And you have to pay for it. Otherwise, you know, you don't get it. Yeah, I had a friend who had this happen to him in Thailand. I think he was making like leather jackets. And so his customs wanted to tax him sending it out and he was like oh it's 150 dollars i saw on your website but we're going to tax you 50 percent and so he basically wanted him to like give up the goods because he already tried it on it was like a return shipment and he's like yeah if you don't want it if you wanted to go up you need to tax you again wow just like, oh, wow jeez, yeah <laughs> yeah I guess, I guess like southeast asia like kind of poorer countries are a little more corrupt but it's just it's kind of infuriating sometimes like i heard the u.s is so pretty straightforward compared to like most places like it's really quick I and mean, maybe you get pulled aside but as far as like the process goes like one week is like really short like i got something held here in vietnam for like four weeks and i had to send it back it took like another two weeks and i was about to, about to like shoot someone <laughs> 
Well, I guess I should be thankful. It was, it was just like a week, and you know, it was this extra week or something. But I was like, wow, you got to wait an extra week, and you got to pay for the, you know, their fee to inspect. Yeah, and these things, you don't expect it. Like starting out, you're like, what? Like customs can just do this? I can just have my stuff pulled aside and like. Right. Yeah, first it's almost like infuriating when you. Right, huh? What are you gonna do? What? All right, so let's move on a little bit more. So, uh, if we look at your business now, kind of the sales breakdown is you know is most of this coming from online or wholesalers, or what does the breakdown look like? Say, if we had to like assign percentages to kind of each channel for you. Oh, I'd say uh, right now ninety percent or more is coming from online direct sales, but we are that's because we just really started to go after retail stores just recently, and we are doing that now, and we are. Um, going to be repped. We're, we're repped by uh, several outside sales uh, brokers who are handling our product along with other products, but uh, who are starting to pick up our product. Gotcha. And I guess you pay them by commission or how does yes. that work out? Yes. You pay them by commission. Interesting. Yes. All right, cool, cool. And so, uh, you know, say like two years from now, are you hoping like wholesale gets bigger? Because I think most people still shop for things. I mean, I think it really helps to see this belt because um, some people would say, you know, hey, that's a lot for a belt, you know what I mean? And I think that once people see it, uh, because the reaction we got from the first Kickstarter campaign was almost funny. It was so positive. I mean, everybody was so over-the-top excited and happy about their belt. Um, it felt so strongly about it. I, I don't know, 30%, 40% of the people came back to buy another belt and uh, just just loved it. So I think it's really something you have to see. You know, I think that helps a lot. We can't show you all the, the quality that goes into it. Yeah, I'm on your website now. I think the price points around like seventy dollars yes. for one, which isn't that. It's not that bad, though. I mean, no, and it's it's really a great belt. I mean, like I said, our we have competitive. Uh, there's competitors that have they're half the price, but we we bought the competitors' belts and they're half the quality. I mean, they're really pretty crappy. Wow, it's really really bad, and the and the leather quality is like bottom basement barrel. You know, it's just the bottom, and you're like, wow, okay. So that's what we find with our competitors. We're we are the best quality among any kind of track type belt. Yeah, so since you say the leather, let's just give everyone an idea. Like when you say the leather on the belt's bad, what happens after a long time? Like what should people be aware of if it's like Well, you know, some of the competitors' belts are made with what's called action leather, which is small pieces of leather that are glued together and then they're sanded down and they usually put like a film over them. The belt just kind of cracks, dries out, splits, never really fits to your body as well as it could. You know, it just it starts to look like hell after a short period of time, after six months or a year. Our belts are the, you know, somebody was asking me recently, can, can I get your top grain belts in a size 55 or 60? And I said, unfortunately, you can't because the cow is not that long. Our belts, are, our belts are literally cut from the cow's skin, the top layer. And that's what it is. It's, the top, it's called top grain or full grain leather. What happens is our, our, our leather really wears nicely. It actually starts to conform to your waist, your personal waist size. And over time, it kind of develops a little patina and actually looks better. So it actually can improve with age. Yeah, I think most people don't realize that real leather comes from a cowhide and the way it's processed. Like it's not, like a leather couch that's like super big probably isn't real because you, there's cows just don't come that big, right? So. Right, exactly. Well, it, I, I, we get some interesting comments too. Somebody will say to me, one time someone said, uh, not too long ago, hey, I need, there's something wrong with the belt. It has a certain ripple on it. It must be cheap leather, I wanna take it back. I just kind of, we kind of laugh because we think, well, it's not cheap. It's just that the cow is not perfect. Yeah. It's like, it's like, if you look at, you know, your skin, you probably had a paper cut hair, uh, you know, when you're young, banged your leg somewhere and like, it leaves a scar, right? It's like, that's why I tell people it's the same thing. It's like your skin, if 
you had these cuts and it became a piece of leather. Like that's what would happen. That's exactly what happens. I mean, that's what happens with the cow. The cow is not perfect. He's going to have some little blemishes and that's what you're going to see sometimes on the leather. Awesome. All right. So let's move on into marketing a little bit. So, uh, you know, you had a successful Kickstarter. Uh, most of your sales are coming from online. So how is the marketing plan working out for you? What are like the main channels that you're focusing on? Our main th- thrust this year was to do this kick, uh, Trackline 2.0 campaign. And then our next big thing on our marketing plan is to really get into a certain number of stores this year, retail outlets. So that's kind of our, I mean, there's some other smaller things like we're trying to up our SEO game and some of our social media. That's our, our that's, that's our main gist really is, is retail stores. Yeah. And do you think SEO people are searching for Trackline? Is there the search volume there? or Because I think this is kind of new. You were saying for the U.S. market, right? So, like, how would you? I think so. I think it's a new thing. I mean, I think people have to almost hear about it or stumble upon it or something because it's not. People aren't looking for you know belts without holes or something by and large. So it's a lot of there's a lot of word of mouth, and um, you know we try to keep all of our uh, Kickstarter people abreast of what we're doing. Gotcha. And what's your rationale for kind of going offline into wholesalers or retailers rather than being a strict online business? Uh, well, it's a, it's a whole different thing. I mean, you, when you're going um, you go into retail stores, there's a whole different set of rules, pricing, and uh, just kind of different things. And we're trying to make them work together. That's part of what we've been, I don't know, just kind of focused on lately is getting those things to kind of sync up. What's the one thing that's worked really well for you guys so far? You know, well, I mean, the best thing that's, we've had is Kickstarter, without a doubt. I mean, uh, that's, that is, that's the, the simple answer is Kickstarter. Gotcha. And would you advise everyone that has an idea to go Kickstarter too? or? No, I've seen a lot of things I thought just didn't work on Kickstarter. There's just been products and projects that I thought, oh, that doesn't really seem like a Kickstarter project. I heard the other day that 40, somebody said 46% of projects get funded on Kickstarter. That's pretty high, don't you think? That's almost half. Yeah, I think it also depended on if it was like 10k or 15k like if you said 200k it's probably a lot harder than getting 10k and then being funded and being overfunded like kind of this like expectations game there too like i see you guys you said i think 15,000 starting out around that and then when you get 30 300 it looks so much better right rather than saying oh i well we always go low yeah because we think it's better to go low i've seen people that go right to 75 and you're like oh okay well if you want to but i mean you're going to really lower your your chances of, of kind of getting funded and it looks better if you get you know 500 times what you need but 50 percent or close to 50 percent says to me that there's a lot of products i mean half of them are getting funded but i mean realistically 50 percent of the projects on there don't make it in the long run as a business probably aren't great ideas I mean, you see some good ideas on Kickstarter. Don't get me wrong, but I, I think half of them can't be that great. Yeah, that's what happens. I was talking to my fulfillment center. They were saying how a lot of Kickstarter projects go there for the initial campaign. And then after that, they don't have a marketing plan, like a long-term sustainable strategy. And then it just kind of peters out. And I guess I guess most people, most people don't think about that. Right? They think, oh, I got 300K or 100K and you know, let's bang this out. And then I think a year or two later, you're like, oh, gosh, do I want to keep doing this? I guess most people don't think that far ahead. No, I don't think so. I think I think you're right. I think most people are just kind of that's that's the end of them, you know. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting about your Kickstarter, uh, I saw you started out. Uh, your initial goal was like fifteen thousand, and with like say fifty dollars a pledge, sixty dollars a pledge. Like, did you have any idea it would go this far to like three hundred k, or why did you pick only fifteen thousand? I had no idea. I thought fifteen was a decent number. I was like a real, real basic number if we really wanted to just kind of get started. Um, I thought that that would be a real baseline number, but my real goal, I think, for that would have was was about sixty thousand. 
In other words, I put 15 as a real baseline, but I thought really what I'd like to get here is if I could just get uh, 60,000, that would be ideal. But I won't put 60 because that's a big number, 60,000. And I've never done this before and I just don't know if it's going to work at all, right? So I don't want to put myself out of the game before I get started. You can always refund the money. You can always cancel the project if you want. There's just, there's different ways to get out of it before they charge anyone you can cancel, you know? They don't charge people to the very end, so you can always just back out. So, yeah, that was, so So my real goal was, in my in my head, was I, I, I'd really love to get to 60. I had no idea I would get to 300,000 plus. So it just told me that people really loved the belts and they thought it was a cool idea. Gotcha, very cool. And how long did it take to hit your goal of 15,000? Day and a half. So we had a list of, you know, blogs, review sites, PR stuff that we were ready to do, but we couldn't really launch it. We didn't really want to launch it until we launched the, the campaign. You know, we didn't want to start advertising that we've got this and that going when there's no there's nothing online. So we kind of st- stepped back, got everything ready, put the campaign up on a Sunday night. We wanted it to end on a Sunday night, so it kind of worked out. And then we kind of went to bed, thought, all right, that's enough. We've worked on this thing for two months, three months. It's as good as we can get it for what we were doing. And uh, woke up in the morning and we were, I don't know, you know, close to 10 grand. So I was like, wow, okay. And then it was just a constant, if you looked at our dashboard, our graph on the back end, it was just a, a steady climb. It was just a steady climb every day, almost 10,000 a day at average, obviously. Nice, so one thing, you mentioned the PR angle a little bit. So uh, am I, if I'm understanding this right, you had some bloggers review your product, but they all published it on the same day, right? No, no, we had been published it different days. I mean, we, we immediately set out to, well, let's see what we can do how we can fuel this and make this go further faster by getting some bloggers and review sites, men's fashion review sites to look at the product. But that's tough because, you know, you, then you kind of get out there and you're like, oh, wow, these guys get bombarded with requests to review products every week, every day. And so what sets you apart? So you really have to kind of, you know, be a squeaky wheel and you got to make a lot of noise really fast because the clock's ticking. You only got 30 days. And now, you know, by the time they get the sample, you know, you got 20 days. So, I don't think the blogs and the reviews did that much. I mean, most of our traffic and most of our sales came directly from Kickstarter. We were so popular within Kickstarter. Oh, just within the ecosystem. Yeah. So people sometimes say, what's the secret to success? I said, we have a great product. We really have a, a fun product that people, the guys love. Yeah, it's interesting because I talked to some fashion bloggers and there's one guy that told me, you know, most of them just don't get that much traffic. And I, I think it's true because if you look at their Facebook pages, like how many people, how many people are actually liking stuff and sharing it? Like some of them, it's like pretty abysmal. You have like... You know, 5,000 people and then it's like one like on an article. You're just like, come on. <laughs> I'm not going to talk to this guy. I mean, not not to be disrespectful, but it's probably just not the right fit, right? So. Well, there's just, there's just so much noise out there that I think a lot of people, you know, they, they go in, they think they're going to do this or do that. Or, or people think they're going to pay attention to this blog or whatever. But you know how it is. You get busy, you get distracted. So, um, you know, we were lucky. Our secret to our success was, was a great product. People that have to go out there that have a product and they have to take their family and friends and take everybody to task on backing them and supporting them, probably shouldn't even launch the product. It sounds harsh, but I'm just saying what, that doesn't prove anything. If you've had to pound your friends and your family and all your contacts to buy one, support you, what are you going to do when you have to go out there for real and your family's already bought one? Because they know you. But, I mean, what are you going to do when it's all over and the dust settles and Kickstarter's done and now you've, you know, what do you do then? You know, you have a product that just your family, you know, they supported you out of pity or just because they wanted to support you and they wanted to help you out. And I understand that. But that just to be a, a harsh, you know, kind of a realistic business person, that doesn't do you any good. 
because in the real world, when you get out there, you, no one's going to buy the product or there's going to be, you know, you're not going to have enough sales to make it. Yeah. So, so what are the signs then you'd say if something has legs, like kind of just intuitively based on what we're talking about right now? If people buy it, you know, people open their wallet and spend money to get it. Yeah. Especially people that you don't know, you've never seen. They're just, yeah. When I was a kid, I had a, you know, a, um, a product that we called neat seat and it was, sounds crazy, but it was a little gadget we came up with and you put your foot on it. And I sat next to the toilet. It was a little pedal, and you pushed down the pedal and lifted the toilet seat up, so you didn't have to bend over and lift it and touch it with your fingers. And then when you were done uh, going to the bathroom, when you were a guy standing there, you just let go, and it had an air cylinder, and it kind of came down real slow. We called it neat seat. So we fooled around with the major prototypes. But back then, this is like the late '80s, early '90s. We took it to the swap meet because we we set up a booth that looked just like a bathroom stall at your house, and we you know we saw how many people were going to willing to buy it because I kept saying if people are willing to purchase it then we know we have something if they don't and they just kind of marvel at it and think it's a fun idea, but they're not willing to buy one. Then what do you do? Yeah. It's kind of like if your product is also a vitamin or an aspirin, I've heard someone say like, is it nice to have or something they must have too? And I think the neat, neat seed kind of sounded like a nice to have, right? It's not like a core. Problem. No, it's not a core unless problem. Unless you're like a crazy germo, germaphobe. Or something right. Like well, that. you know, a lot of women were complaining that, you know, at the time I always was thinking that women are always complaining about leaving the toilet seat up, you know, and then they go and sit down on it. I guess women at night, you know, especially at night, if they're living with the, their husband, significant other, whoever, they go in the bathroom at night to the bathroom, they accidentally sit on the, you know, without the seat up. It's up. Yeah. It's funny, funny you bring this up because my old toilet in Taiwan, Solve this problem. Basically, it was one of those advanced Japanese ones that has like a water spray, and like blow dryer, and like seat. <laughs> and basically, it would know when you stand in front of it, it would, the seat would just come up because it has a sensor there. And then when you, when you leave after five seconds, it automatically goes down. That's great. Why don't they have them here? They should have those here. <laughs> yeah. And even after you're done, you don't have to flush it because it knows when you walk away. Like the sensor knows that you're not there anymore and it just flushes itself. And you're like, wow, this is fucking awesome. Wow. So, you know, there's another Asian product that could be here in the States because, you know, you hear that kind of stuff and people like a little bit of luxury. Not, It's obviously not everybody wants it, but there's definitely going to be a market for something like that. I mean, without the toilet seat going up, you know, guys tend to a lot of times we pee on the seat accidentally. Women sit it. They're like, oh, I'm sitting in that. You know, that's what really irritates them. Yeah. So how far would you also say this is kind of off a tangent that, Maybe your marketing message is off. Maybe like your copy or the way you present it is wrong. Have you thought about that? Because I think I had a friend who had a campaign fail the first time and then the next time he blew it out of the water. And it was really the same product, but I think the way he presented it was a little bit different. So, I mean, any thoughts on well, that? Well, yeah, I think that is important. I, I think, and that can be a little bit maddening because you never really know. I think that that's the part where you, you know, Kickstarter has this um, option when you're making your campaign up and you haven't launched it yet. You can send a link out, private link out to your friends. I, I wouldn't recommend sending it to everybody. I would just send it to people whose opinion you respect and you know that they can, they've got a good sense of maybe marketing and branding and that kind of stuff and get their feedback. And, you know, everybody has their own opinion. You kind of look for trends though. Okay. It seems like everybody doesn't really like the video because I'm not getting my point across. Yeah, that is hard. That, that, that's tough because you just don't know. You're kind of second guessing yourself a lot. You're like, okay, do people get what this product is? Do they, do they see it? I always think, okay, they got about five seconds. They better understand the product in the first five to ten seconds because they're gonna they're gonna turn off the video. They're gonna move on. They, people don't have time, right? It's like, show me what it is, tease me, show me what it is really fast. Okay, and I, so I tried to put the belt on there. 
pretty quickly on the first campaign. YouTube videos that say, here's how to do something, but then the author spends another 10 seconds saying, hey, thanks for watching the video. Here's how to do something. And like, it just drives me nuts. Like, just get, I know I read the title. Yes. I clicked it, just get into it. Stop wasting my time. Right, yeah, yeah, you're kind of like, I got stuff to do. Just please stop the introduction. I've had, I've had several of those. They go on and on. We're glad you joined us today. Um, we do all these videos. You're like, oh my God, just go on. Just tell me what I need to know, right? Yeah, I think you already lost me by like five seconds if you don't get to the point. So I kind of think like that. I think people are impatient. And, um, you know, the people that aren't impatient, great. Stick around and watch the rest of the two minutes. But uh, in the first 10 seconds, I better be into the product. You know what I mean? You better be grasping it already and understanding what makes it unique or different. Yeah. Does Kickstarter have like video stats for you? Like how many people finish yes, they do. watching the whole video? So what does that look like for you guys? Like do people make it through the whole three minutes or? No, no, but it says, you know, I was surprised. It says like 75 to 80% of you will watch the whole video. Uh, that's pretty good. You know, and it has how many, how many views you see a lot of people don't, but then again, what's the, I mean, the end of my video, it goes black at the end and it's got like repetitive credits. I mean, okay, well that might mean that just most of the people just didn't bother when the credits came on, they turned it off. That's fine. So some people kept watching, you know, beyond that. So, wow. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Very cool. So uh, thanks again, Carl, for joining us today. Uh, I think that's all we got. So uh, let us know where we can find you online and buy some belts. Yes, you can go to Core Essentials, and that's K-O-R-E, Essentials. Or you can just Google like Trackline Belts. With Trackline, there's no C. It's just T-R-A-K-L-I-N-E, Belts. Awesome. All right, Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks for having me, Terry. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast. If you want the show notes, make sure to check out the website at buildmyonlinestore.com. If you've got an e-commerce store, every two weeks I lead a live mastermind call with about five or six of the listeners in two separate groups where we work openly together and solve a business problem that you have. And we're all there to support each other. So if this sounds like a cup of tea, make sure to check us out at buildmyonlinestore.com slash mastermind. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch up with you guys next week.